Welcome to Fireside Chat Fridays, sponsored by Parents for Public Schools of Syracuse, to give voice to the families and students of Syracuse on education matters. You're listening on Straight Independent Radio. We join this episode, already in progress, with our guests, Karen Cordano, candidate for Syracuse City School Board, and Amalia Scandalis, former Syracuse City School District art teacher. I received in the suburbs and um, that did not seem right to me. Uh, I knew because of uh, current studies that have been done that when you have, that I was not harming my child in any way by having him be part of a school district that was um, criminally underfunded and undersupported because um, test scores, which is a really poor way to measure, um, but one of the the ways to measure uh, how kids are doing show that when you put a middle-class kid in a classroom that is um, majority minority or um, that is majority kids living in poverty, that their test scores don't go down, yet the other children's test scores rise. And that's probably because of the resources that that child can bring to the classroom, not because that child is any better in any way. Um, But realizing all of that made me want to become involved and to uh, be part of the solution. So that, that was the beginning of it. Honestly, even before then, when we moved, we moved to Syracuse when I was nine months pregnant with my eldest. And my husband is a, um, he teaches at SSU. And um, we were told by um, colleagues, by HR, that you couldn't live in the city and you couldn't send your kids to city schools. And um, I told my husband I wasn't moving to Syracuse if we weren't living in the city because I've lived in cities for my entire adult life and I have no desire to live in the suburbs or raise my children in that environment. And so, um, you know, we live in the university neighborhood and um, have watched with great sadness as our kids moved through preschool and the big talk was this Um, talk amongst the families, are you going to move? Are you going to go to the suburbs? It was a very um, blatant racist conversation, very much out in the open that happened. And um, we're committed to the city. We are um, committed to the school district. We love the school district and um, we feel like um, both of our children are thriving. You bring up a, a great point that that, that that prejudice that seems to exist out there um, throughout the county against Syracuse City School District and Syracuse City Schools. And it seems to sometimes spread over to the students Amalia, I wanted to ask you, what was your experience of that attitude of, you know, people who were working in the city about the Syracuse City School District? Sorry, I had some dog trouble. I had to move the puppies out of here. They were being loud. (laughs) They're gone now. 
So my, my question for you is, what has your experience been of this, this prejudice that seems to exist um, about Syracuse City Schools and the students in the schools, particularly among people who work in the city, but don't live in the city? Is that question to me, Sam? Yes, that's for you, Amalia. Okay, I think the first thing um, that I see a disconnect in being um, with the curriculum, um, but also in a teacher's mindset um, within the culture and community where we work in Syracuse. Um, when we had the Common Core curriculum come through in New York State, um, which is now called the Next Generation Standards, it kind of morphed into this thing, um, teachers were all of a sudden given a handbook for education that said, you know, teachers have to teach these things, students have to say these things. There was no differentiation really when it came to which learners you were serving, which community you were in, um, or really what's even going on in the real world. Uh, one of the biggest things my students would ask me when I was teaching um, at Blodgett, for example, I've been an art teacher in the city for, um, you know, over 12 years. Um, currently unemployed working from home, but I've been in many, many of our school buildings. I've been in Frazier, I've been in Porter, I've been in Blodgett, um, you know, Roberts, Levy, when it was still Levy, uh, quite a few, you name it. Um, I don't think that teachers that come from suburbia, uh, from a different cultural mindset necessarily have the same understanding of the population they're going in to teach. I'm not sure that they're well prepared um, ahead of time, as far as as far as the district mm -hmm. maybe being as forthcoming, um, you know, and these this is the situation you're going to walk into. Um, and I would hear just a lot of closed doors and closed conversations with children asking questions and wanting to know more. And then maybe teachers not being able to uh, necessarily meet them where they're at or open those doors or tend to those doors based on the curriculum and the administration and the things that are kind of being put in front of them, like that's what's more important, instead of tending to this actual child and this human being that's in front of you. Mm. Um, one of the biggest questions that I would get during February, during Black History Month is why are we not learning about Black history during Black History Month? And that is a fantastic question mm -hmm. to our educators at the federal level, at the New York level, um, who have put this curriculum in place and decided this is what our, our kids need to know. But yet during the month of Egypt of, uh, of Black History Month, um, our eighth graders were, were learning about Egypt, like strictly small, very small. Um, so I think in order to bring the conversation, you know, more into the current age, the curriculum really has to open up and match, um, you know, students where they're at. I don't think standardizing everything about education is just going to work for everybody. Look at cookie cutter that way. Mm -hmm. um, I hope that answered a bit of your conversation, your question there. <laughs> yes, yes, that did answer the question somewhat. I, I do have another question. Okay. And this is for, oh, where I put it? Okay, Karen, yes, for you. As a candidate and as a parent, are you satisfied with how the district responds to the concerns of families? We, you know, there's there's been a lot of talk this week about the survey, about are we gonna go to more days of in-person learning or are we gonna go fully remote? And it's a two question survey about a very complicated thing. So my question to you is, you know, how, how do you view the response of concerns of families from the district? I think that the district 
um, listens to the loudest voices. Um, and I think that the district can be reactive in when there could be more wisdom in taking a breath and a moment. I know that things move very quickly, but um, before making decisions, I think that um, more voices need to be listened to, not just the voices that have access and the voices that are going to make the biggest noise. Um, I, you know, every family is different. And I filled out that survey. Um, you know, I don't want to get too deep into the lives of my, for privacy reasons of my, 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 personal, uh, my children's situation, but um, I am familiar with special needs and IEPs and 504s. And so if you are familiar with that kind of thing as a parent, being able to provide special education services at home is, um, yeah, yes. not really a pot. <laughs> yeah. uh -huh. I'm, I'm not a special ed teacher. And so that makes my family's decision much easier. But every family is different. Everyone has um, different priorities based on what their child's needs are. Uh, so I would say that um, I think that there's a real disconnect and that there is a missed opportunity um, and communication struggle. And if you have the resources to have your voice heard, then your voice is heard, no problem. But if you do not have those resources, um, then it becomes much more difficult and decisions are made for you. And one of the things that we are about here at Parents for Public Schools Syracuse is making sure that every family has that access and every family has the resources to make their voices heard. And I, I agree with you, there is this disconnect between, between families and the students and kind of the, the, the people who are running the district. They're not having the same conversations. They don't seem to be having the same experiences of the education process here in Syracuse. Um, Amalia, I wanted to ask you about the schools that you've worked in. Um, you said that you've been in almost every building in the district. What was um, Well, I wouldn't say every building, but before, before we get into that, and I forget my train of thought, can I touch base on your last question a little bit about this two-question sure. survey and what's coming out to parents? Um, I think what we're having is quite a larger problem than we're just seeing in Syracuse City Schools um, is county overreach. I don't understand why uh, County Executive Brian McMahon has all of a sudden decided that he's going to play education policymaker. Um, mm. But I need to be very clear about the point that policy for schools happens at our school boards and in our schools. Ryan McMahon, Onondaga County has absolutely no business setting policy for our schools. Um, East Syracuse Manoa, which is where my kids attend. Um, I live in Eastwood. I'm right outside of the district. Uh, when I moved back to Syracuse, I was working for the district. So I felt it was a personal conflict of interest to have my children attend the same school um, because I'm a vocal individual. Um, and I felt like I couldn't necessarily advocate for my own children, you know, if I had to worry about my job. Um, and I think mm. that's what our teachers are facing yeah. in education as a whole. I don't think that the people with the loudest mouth and the most resources get heard. I think they get cut. 
And I think that's what we have going on in Syracuse City School District, the teachers that are the strongest and the best for our kids, the teachers that are the most well qualified, highest trained and have been there the longest, the teachers that maybe care for them the most and are the most vocal and advocate, you know, driven when it comes to getting things in the classrooms and for their kids. Those are the ones that get messed with. Those are the ones that get transferred buildings. Those are the ones that get denied future employment. Those are the ones that get put on jewel agreements. And for people um, that aren't familiar, a jewel agreement is when you're nearing the end of your four year term for tenure in New York State, tenure law changed from three years to four years. So now when you're nearing the end of your fourth year, you come up for tenure review and the district decides, well, have you been a good little employee or do you maybe need another year of review? And if you maybe need a yet another year of review, it's basically like putting you on probation all over again and threatening you, you will lose your job if you don't X, Y, and Z. Um, so that's kind of the state of the disaster that's going on within our Syracuse City Public Schools where teachers are being you know, ebbed and flowed as, as the state of opinions and this little, 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 little glimpses of data is even coming out. Mm -hmm. We have the slightest you know, down pitch of what's looking better in data and all of a sudden, you know, a man who is not a health professional, not an education professional, not a policy professional when it comes to our schools and our children is going to put forth a, a policy proposal was the way it was worded to me in my survey for my district. Um, we have the same two question survey that asks us if we want our children to go fully remote, uh, fully virtual five days a week or fully in school for five days a week. My own children just started going back to school hybrid two days a week because to me, um, as, a, as a you know high um, risk family, didn't feel safe up until this point. I went, I saw the school buildings, I saw the distancing, I saw the mm -hmm. protocols in place and I decided, well, ESM has this all under control and I felt safe. They made me feel safe enough as a parent. And mm -hmm. I asked them, I said, with the talks of Onondaga County, because it already had started, it already started with what with the talk in the county, we can reduce it to three feet. I don't know where they got three feet. I sure didn't see the CDC tell me that three feet COVID can't be spread anymore and it's okay for my child to sit. I, I can't, I can't even get into that part right now. I'm gonna mm -hmm. stick with the science is what I'd like to do. I was mm -hmm. assured in the district that they would not be reducing distancing and would not be reducing um, mask mandates or anything else. What they did tell me was that the county changed without notifying anybody, they changed contact tracing protocols. So now for our children on the bus, for example, and mine do not ride the bus because I do not like or trust this policy. The new policy is instead of contact tracing everybody on the bus, picture what's a bus, an eight by 20 foot square foot box, right? So they contact trace in restaurants, they contact trace if you have first person contact as an adult. But if you're a child riding in an eight by 20 foot box, shoulder to shoulder next to somebody else across the aisle, Onondaga County now only contact traces the children that are directly next to you, in front of you or behind you. I'm not sure if they necessarily notified parents before that decision was made, but they told me there was no way to notify me if there was a positive COVID that wasn't directly next to my child. So I declined my mm. bus ride to school. Um, well, now that, I'm that, real, that is concerning um, when we know that we're dealing with an airborne disease. I, I want to get back to something that you were talking about, uh, the work environment for teachers, classroom staff, uh, building staff here in the district. And it's not the first time that I have heard concerns that people have that speaking up will cost them their livelihood. 
So sure. my, my question for, for you, Karen, is what do you see as the role of the school board in combating this toxic work environment that has people operating out under fear of losing their jobs? So the role of the school board um, is really uh, technically twofold. It's to hire the superintendent and it's to approve the budget. Um, but what I think uh, I have, um, I have re good relationships with the majorities of the members of the school board now and um, with the uh, current slate of candidates that are running. And what my hope is, is that um, when um, I hope to join the school board, that the board will be able to form kind of a coalition to approach the superintendent with topics like these that are a concern where we can say, you know, this is a matter that we really need to be looked at. And I think that um, there definitely is a uh, tension between the teachers and the district um, that absolutely needs to be addressed um, and that the district needs needs to hear it. Um, I don't, I think that a lot of it, a lot of the issues that we're experiencing, um, de-escalation is uh, something that can help in so many different areas. But, um, the not feeling supported, I know, is definitely tied to the code of conduct. And I think that while it is definitely true that the environment in the district has improved since the code of conduct has been put into place, there is a distrust. There needs to, we need to go back to um, the code of conduct in terms of how the district can feel pressure from the state to make sure that um, we're only disciplining X amount of, um, while keeping, keeping the discipline equitable, I think that it becomes, it can become a numbers game, which is a, a ridiculous way to run you're, you're creating a situation where if a teacher feels something unsafe is happening and that child is still put in the classroom, the teacher's gonna be distrustful. This creates implicit bias. It, you're not dealing with the situation that um, is actually happening. Um, and sometimes those situations, it could be anything. It could be um, the teacher through frustration who is accidentally escalating. Um, so de-escalation training, I think, would help a great deal. I think that implicit bias training would help a great deal. I think that it needs to be continuous, not one time, every single year. Um, uh, cultural competency, all of these the tensions come from, the, I think, in large part, the fact that the um, teachers and the student body are so incredibly different. I think the district's already making an effort in order to hire um, 
more teachers of color, which is absolutely what needs to be happening. But the the fact that the cultural competency doesn't exist in a lot of the cases is is really troubling. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you brought up the code of conduct because that raises the question of, it, it's, it's a national trend all throughout the country that stu minority students and students who are receiving special education services are disproportionately impacted by school codes of conduct. Now, if that is the source, truly the source of tension between the district and the district employees, what does that say about, about the culture of the district wherein something that disproportionately impacts minority students and students with, with disabilities is the thing that, that the district and its employees seem to be butting heads over? I, I think it's something that, that I think everyone's dancing around it. I think that it needs to, we need to face some of these issues head on and it's uncomfortable and um, really difficult to talk about. And, you know, I don't wanna speak for all white people, but a lot of white people don't want to talk about race and we need to talk about race. I mean, I don't particularly want to talk about race. It's uncomfortable. It's hard. It's facing up to, and you know, talking about race is an absolute minefield. You know, you're going to get stuff wrong. I get stuff wrong all the time. And you, but we aren't going to fix these problems unless we face it and understand we're going to get stuff wrong and that we need to listen and and learn and um and and do the work hmm. um now besides the code of conduct there seems to be a lot of tension between the the district district employees families i hear from district employees a lot and the the first thing they say is keep my name out of it because, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. They are concerned about what will happen mm -hmm. to them for speaking out. And they're mm -hmm. not, the, the things that they are saying are things that should not be happening in the district. Um, people harassing their subordinates, teachers not getting the supports they need in the classroom. I'm not sure that that's really down to the code of conduct. It seems that this is more of a, of a bigger institutional issue. And um, Amalia, I want you to speak to this as from your position as a teacher who worked in the district and who no longer is employed by the district. Oh, Lord, I'm just having like a little breathing time right now. Um, <laughs> I was working for the district during the assurance of discontinuance and when it was dissolved. Um, and I personally witnessed um, threatening of teachers, falsifying of data, um, removal of data from our um, computer systems. Administrators would go in and physically change write-ups that teachers put in themselves, change the wording of what happened. 
Um, there were several instances that I was directly involved in where a student, um, for example, would be harmed, say something happened, and you have to document what happens between the two students. Um, and then it was documented that a mediation took place. Uh, the children had, had a conversation. Um, proper protocols and procedures that we have in place look good on paper and they have trained people yearly after year after year, which are there and solid and research-based don't happen. Um, they say they happen on paper as far as the school board knows it happens on paper. Um, and I also speak as somebody who was a school board member myself with the East, school, East Syracuse Manoa District. I was a, an elected board member for two years. So I've also been through um, the policy and the law making. Um, I, I would also like to put out there to any Syracuse City School Board candidates that that superintendent works for you. Uh, you don't just hire him, he works for you. And along with making sure the budget passes, um, setting and approving new policy and programming for our kids really needs to be of utmost importance because especially our kids in the city, they do not get um, a supplemented suburban education. Um, our tax dollars are what funds school in a district like Syracuse City, where there's upside down taxes and massive corporations that are given tax breaks for decades that don't pay, like Destiny Mall, who just said our kids can't go there any anymore, by the way, um, even though they've, they've uh, benefited, I think, from over $20 million in tax breaks or something like that. Um, we have a dysfunctioning adult problem, very much so. Um, personally, I don't think that the things they have in place are well done. Um, in buildings that I've been in, you know, you have tiny children that are um, in the halls, unattended, running around, telling grown-ups P's and Q's. Um, you know, we have the constructs in place, the BIC room, for example, the Behavior Intervention Center. Um, in a Shangri-La world, it should be a situation, you see a child in crisis, you see a child who's escalating, that child needs a break from your classroom. It's easy. Whatever triggered the child, it's environmental. If it's you, first of all, you need to deal with it's you and you need to be quiet and step back from that child. I think we have a, a lot of power struggles that set our children off in the city mm. that don't need to happen. Um, it's completely unprofessional and not necessary. Um, but when a child needs a minute, you need to give a child that minute. Um, they need a change of time and place. They need a settled environment. They need a visual change. They need physical water touching their body. They need cold air. They need things that are going to biologically switch their brain, their little tiny mm -hmm. child development brain into a safe mode. Our children mm -hmm. already come from communities and, and environments of trauma and to come into an educational institution that is just another place for trauma um, mm -hmm. yeah. is nothing more than damaging for our kids. Our kids are not being set up to have a successful future. Um, yes. That's a grown up problem. Um, I don't know how else to say that. <laughs> Can I As say well? something, Samantha? Sure. Go ahead, Karen. Um, so I uh, agree with the fact that there are so many of the kids that are coming to school in the district who are not ready to learn and it's not their fault. You can't, because of what is going on in their personal life, they come to the school building and they are not ready to learn. And at that point, we need help from the county, we need help from the city, and we need help from the state. The school district, I feel like one thing that Superintendent Alessia really 
excels at and that the board has um, definitely, you know, rallied around is trying to address the needs of these kids. Like he, uh, he cares about these kids and he cares about getting food to these kids and about the um, services that they need, but there aren't enough services. And mm. it, he's not running or he's not running a restaurant business. That's not what we're supposed to be doing in education. And yet it falls upon the district's shoulders to distribute meals that are needed. Like this needs to happen. Um, it's a good thing that it's happening. And I'm glad that there is, I've been, you know, a, a, a so much focus on it, especially during the pandemic. But there are all of these other issues that um, subvert someone, um, I will say that someone I recently heard say, you know, it seems like that schools in the district, uh, in the city, they seem to improve for a little while and then something happens. Well, I wonder why that is. They're not, the kids are not given the same resources that the kids in the suburbs are given. Um, oftentimes just by, by not being able to be in safe environments and no one is helping them. Um, and all we're doing is making sure that the cycle of poverty um, and the cycle of racism just continues. So I would say that it not only does the school board need to hold the superintendent and the district accountable, but the, the school board needs to hold the county, the city, the state accountable for what these children need that they are not getting. Um, that is not part of what the school day is expected to be in uh, suburban districts who are better funded to begin with, with better school, with uh, school buildings where if there is an issue and they want a new school building, they can, um, they have the tax money to pay for that, or they can put a bond uh, and and vote on a, a bond. And, and we can't do those things here. Well, I'm glad that you brought up the, the, the ac accountability, holding the state and the county and the city accountable for resources that are supposed to be going to the school district that our students desperately need. You, you pointed out that there, there's this cycle of improvement and then things kind of filter, splutter out. One of the things that I've noticed about the Syracuse City School District budgets is that they often depend on a lot of grants and temporary state funds and these competitions that the governor is so fond of, of having diff, you know, different re impoverished regions of the state competing for funding. Hunger Games, anyone? <laughs> <laughs> so there, you, we get funding for a program and the program runs and then the funding runs out and we're done. So I think part what's important is for us to break that cycle of temporary funding and, and being held hostage by the, the vagaries of whatever's happening in the budget cycle this year. Um, I, I want to pause and take time to note that we are this is Fireside Chat Fridays with Parents for Public Schools, where we talk about the state of public education here in Syracuse. 
Our guests today are Karen Cordano, candidate for Syracuse City School Board, and Amalia Scandalis, a former teacher, art teacher in the city of Syracuse. Now, I want to pivot a little bit to discuss what we are calling the digital divide. I think everyone's familiar with this. We're especially familiar with it now that we've been a year into COVID and schools shut down abruptly and we all had to figure out how are we going to teach our kids. So one of the things that became very apparent very quickly is that there is an inequality and inequity in access to reliable internet, in access to equipment, computers, laptops, those kinds of things. And I discovered today, uh, not just today, but fairly recently that some, one of the issues with education here in Syracuse is that sometimes the staff don't have access to technology to be able to support students. Um, I see straight indie radios raising their hand. Hey, Sam, we have a question from Straight Independent Radio Online. Okay. This comes from Jordan in Syracuse. He'd like to know, can being an ally sometimes be detri detrimental to marginalized groups or perhaps hinder the advancement of individuals that may be more appropriate or suitable to be at the table? Okay, who wants to take that question? Well, I'm assuming that that was... Uh... I'm assuming that that was uh, targeted, that the question was for me. And I think that that's a, a really fair question. And I think it's a really hard question. Um, I think that it would depend on the ally um, and it would depend on how much grandstanding, how much listening, how much skin in the game the person would have. Um, I, you know, I send my kids to the district. Um, and so I'm, uh, I'm all in, uh, I have a personal investment in, uh, the, making sure that, um, my kids are educated. And so far I've been very happy with that. Um, I also think that I have a lot to learn. Um, but I am stepping up and saying that I am ready to do this. I have been um, working towards it for a number of years um, through educating myself and volunteering for various um, committees. Um, but I do want to listen. So yeah, I think that that could be an issue. Um, and I, also think that I am the right choice for school board. Amalia, do you want to take a stab at that question? I do. I think that sometimes it's important to also know when to give that seat at the table. Um, because representation matters and diversity matters. And I think what we've had um, in institutions of education, systemic institutions that further racism and institutional oppression, um, it's very important to have 
all the areas of that. And I'm not saying that a white ally can't also be that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm speaking not, not in frame of anybody else, but you know, even more so myself, I've recognized tables that maybe um, I shouldn't myself be at because somebody else uh, might be better suited to be a voice at that table. So I think that the most important thing about being an ally is being able to listen and actually serve the needs of the people that you're seeking to help um, and making sure that their needs are kind of in front of your own, I guess, for lack of a, a, a different way of explaining it. Um, it's hard to share that seat at the table. We need more seats at the table, but you know, diversity and representation matters. And I think that we need a lot more of that um, in different areas of I, all policy rooms. I, I co-sign on the need for more seats at the table to provide a, a, a wider range of voices and a wider range of experience. And I note that Syracuse City School District is a majority minority district, meaning the majority of our students yes. fall into the categories that are considered minorities here in the United States. And that seems to manifest itself in quite a few ways. We also have a, a large population that lives below the poverty line here in, this, here in the city. And that gets me back to this issue of the digital divide. We saw the scramble for to get technology into the hands of students. We saw that students would bring home a laptop from someplace or the other, but they wouldn't have access to Wi-Fi at home so that they could use the laptop to interact with whatever resources were being provided online by the school district. And my question is, how do we, how do we address here in Syracuse this issue with this digital divide where there is this stark poverty line it's ubiquitous and people don't have what are considered regular everyday resources like internet in their homes. Would you uh, like Karen, me to jump on? Uh, Karen, we'll start with you and then Amalia. Okay. So I think that in this latest, um, the stimulus package where we receive over a period of two years more than $40 million. Uh, unfortunately, that money, the state is counting on that to plug holes in the budget for them. What that money is meant for is to um, only be used for uh, things that are related to the pandemic. So there is a pot of money that exists that um, we need to be working with the city. I think so many of these issues, they're not just school district issues. Mm -hmm. These are issues that are uh, citywide issues and, and countywide issues. Um, you know, doing city, city hotspots um, and having the city help fund that or the county help fund that um, or making sure that, that stimulus money that is coming into the state is specifically for that. 
um, that's what we need to be advocating for. Um, we are having this influx of money that is going to make the next year or two not as painful. And then when it ends, we're we're on a cliff. And, and, and that is when things get very, very serious in terms of money for our district. But right now we do have this opportunity to um, start plugging up those holes. At this point, the computers are purchased. We, we have a way to get them to, into the hands of the kids, but, but the Wi-Fi is the big issue. And mm. I, I think that it's not just an issue for the, for the kids, it's an issue, um, I know a teacher last spring where our PTO was trying to convince her to let us buy her a hotspot because she was driving to a, a um, fast food restaurant because she lived out in the sticks and um, she was sitting in the parking lot all day teaching using the Wi-Fi that way. So yes, the, the internet is, um, an issue for particularly for the children, but it's a, a larger issue as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And th there are issues that impact the school district that they didn't start in the school district. They just became a right. parent in the school district. There are issues right. with city governance, with county governance, with state governance. It's like, like uh, I-81 is this big issue. It's a school issue. What, whether or not we're going to do the community grid or not, that's a school issue. Mm. You have a school that's a couple feet from 81. You have a structure that has split the city and uh, ensured generational poverty continued for generations to come after it was built. The, these, all of these... Um, these larger issues, yes, they, they are now, we are stuck with them, but they, the, the city and the county needs to take, the state needs to take responsibility as well. The, the federal government needs to take responsibility for what's going to happen at Dr. King when 81 is under construction mm. in terms of the environmental impact. That's a, that's a great point. Um, Amalia, do you want to take a stab at the question? Sure, uh, just so that I'm, I'm answering correctly here, we're discussing, uh, the question is around the digital divide, um, yeah. resource technology um, and available budget in the age of COVID and virtual learning. Is that about right? Yeah, that's about it. Um, I would agree that we have very many different levels of problems, <laughs> so many <laughs> levels. We have, we have what has been a historical problem in the Syracuse City School District with almost a $500 million a year school budget. Um, we have a county problem that has now mandated either five-day in-person or five-day fully virtual. Um, in my opinion, County Executive Ryan McMahon should now also be mandated to supply uh, ac full access internet um, to families with children because, you know, that's absolutely correct. We're, we're now being denied our rights to an education in various levels of, of, of uh, function and policy and, and action, um, but yet they don't want to do their part on their end. 
either five days a week or five days at home. Well, okay, I could barely get the internet to work here all day when, you know, when we needed to, my own kids were falling behind. Um, you know, as, a, as an education professional that has two master's degree and has been in the game for 15 years, I've been asking for hard copy materials. What can I bring home? What can I supplement for my own kids? We act like we haven't been doing education the old way since 1876. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I can't pick up a packet for my kids and I can't pick up hard materials for my kids. I don't even want the computer to be very frank with you because I don't like how it's being handled. Education professionals are getting frankly lazy. They're frankly copying education materials from YouTube and calling that teaching. I can't even with physical education. So in New York State, a sixth grader, my daughter's in sixth grade, equivalencies of instruction for New York State for a sixth grader is 180 minutes. Equivalencies of instruction for an eighth grader in New York State is 90 minutes. I have one sixth grader, I have one eighth grader. So I looked up the very exact numbers because I wanna be exactly sure how much education my children should be getting. Physical education, one example. They watch a three to five minute video and answer a 10 to 15 question Google form and that's called an equivalency of instruction now. Since when? What piece of New York state law passed that said that was now acceptable um, as, as education? I don't understand. Um, when we talk about research uh, resources and uh, digital technology, SCSD has been fairly deficient for years, and I'm going to frame it back to East Syracuse Manoa. I'm familiar with the budget writing process of both, as both a, a parent, a teacher, and a school board member. Um, Dr. Desiato in East Syracuse Manoa School District secured one-to-one -one technology for 100% of our students through three years worth of a SIG grant, School Improvement Grant, SIG. Um, she was able to secure the money to purchase one-to-one -one Chromebooks for 100% of our population years ago. Our second wave of computers came through right before COVID hit. So we were in a little bit better position to satisfy our students. Um, I think that SCSD has the opportunity to reappropriate some funds. I think if we start connecting some other conversations like removing SROs from schools, um, like defunding the police and communities, when we talk about not closing them and canceling these things and oh my gosh, what are we gonna do? We're talking about seriously moving money away from over-militarized, over-funded departments that should be moved to help our children at a basic level. If you want a community that functions healthy with sustained human beings that aren't mm -hmm. traumatized and aren't you know, gonna, gonna survive by any means possible, you're creating a, an environment where people don't have a choice. What choice do we expect to have these, these children make? They're not having field experiences. They're not having field trips. They're not having one-to-one -one, uh, uh, internships and partner relationships. Um, another thing I would compare in ESM that we do really well uh, is our CTE programs, our career and technical education programs. Um, in ESM, we very much involve stakeholders at every level. We have student groups that inform, not just to placate individuals and not just to put it on paper and not just to say we did these things, but to actually care about what people are saying and apply their words to process an action. I would say that that's one thing that SCSD is not great at doing as somebody who's been involved in the district for over a decade as a teacher, as a parent, as a professional, um, as an artist. We need to do more than just survey people, write it down, and then ignore them. Um, when we look at a school like Blodgett, for example, that's had the auditorium chained for over 25 years, and students there couldn't 
commence to their high school year without walking across the street into a trailer. But yet we're impressing upon these thousands of children that their lives matter and their futures matter and really we want you to be here. But we're not providing busing and transportation to 100% of students. We're claiming that that will cost $2 million more million out of a $500 million budget. First of all, I think you could find it. Second of all, those buses <laughs> drive by those babies anyway. They are driving by the babies anyways. Why can't they pick them up without that mm -hmm. costing more dollars? That doesn't even make sense. That doesn't make sense in the maths. And I'm an art teacher. I don't do the maths. That doesn't make sense. Those numbers, <laughs> that can't make sense. To me. I have seen children, special needs students that I've had personally mm -hmm. at Porter walking across the street under that little bridge trying to get up past uh, past Rosie's there trying to get up to Porter and wow. walk across that way in traffic that's in a rain, crazy intersection in snow it is so dangerous I've seen cars beep and skid and almost hit our families that is so grossly negligent with the almost 500 million dollars they have and have had that I, I can't even I can't I can't point fingers at other people I mean it's all their fault it's all the levels and it's all their problems and it's all their fault and they all got names and I don't even know I don't even know because we've gotten so far away at this point from where we were already deficient in resources technology transportation health and safety in our buildings COVID how about health and safety and infestations and I sure hope they took time while these buildings were closed to mitigate the straight infestations in some of these buildings because I know kids can't learn when they see cockroaches running up the wall and kids can't learn when there's bed bugs present on their clothing or personal items. And teachers can't teach when they're told by their administration that they need to catch the bug on a piece of tape to prove that it's in their room to begin with hmm. as an education professional. Um, there's so I, many I levels. Think that, hmm. I think that takes us back to the, the, the work environment and the learning environment that we have here in the district that is, it's making things more challenging for, for families. It's making things more challenging for students. It's making things more challenging for staff. And Karen, I wanna circle back to you as we, we wind down and ask about how does the school board address these things? How does it, how does it change the culture in the district? How do we change the culture with respect to education in the city and in the county and the state. It's a tall order, but the children are worth that, that kind of work. So how do we change this, this change the district and the attitudes that people have about education and the students and how we should be treating our teachers? So there, um, I'm trying to find, I had come across um, these, uh, you uh webinars um equity talks um it's a organization i i don't have i can find out the information and get it to you but i have attended a couple of them and it's really interesting um on a number of levels it's um superintendents from um usually urban districts around the country talking and um to, to hear the same problems, it's incredibly frustrating and also um, moderately comforting to hear that we're experiencing the same things. But um, I think it was the superintendent in Indianapolis who said what the, um, 
pandemic has taught us is the the we can pivot the the thought beforehand like everyone is like oh well districts are just too big to make these changes quickly well the pandemic taught us that's not true we had to make changes really fast so i think that the answer is we just do it we say it must be done and we do the work i mean i feel personally really ready to dive into this work um and there's there's nothing that it is should stand in the way of stop that we just do it we do it by um the board saying that this is what the focus needs to be this is what we have to do hmm. amalia can you reframe the question for me sam sure well it was it was more along the lines of what can the school board do to change the culture of the district and change the attitudes that people have about education. I think that we've only got a couple minutes left, though. Oh Lord, I got I'm time to think. For she just wants me to talk. Nobody ever wants me to just talk. Sam, you don't want me to think first. Gosh, um, I think one thing that would really help the school board address those needs more directly is if they uh, divvied up the schools a little bit and maybe had each board member be in charge of a specific set of schools and then to really get boots on the ground in those schools and with those families. Um, really building those relationships, relationships, relationships is the biggest word I think that our district needs to focus on um, at different levels. Um, I think that having those hard, honest conversations about the reality of what's going on and the reality of what our kids need is important. Um, nobody's got time to point fingers and, and make blame like it is what it is. Here's what's happening and how you gonna fix it. I think that's the most important thing going forward. Um, but really being more in touch of what's going on in the classroom, not just what's on paper. I know personally as the board member, it's very easy to just get that paper, skim it over. You have your time to read it before your meeting, you're voting yay or nay. Um, you may or may not understand all the lines on the budget. Um, I know when I was digesting the Syracuse City School budget, for example, uh, at $486 million, um, there were several lines that were called miscellaneous or other, you know, to the tune of $100,000 here, $100,000 there. I didn't understand what that was as a parent or a teacher. Um, I think that school board members understanding what all of those line items mean, and it's okay to take the time. Don't let them make you feel like you have to rush and just vote yay or nay. It's okay to ask for clarifying questions. Um, I think it's important to not just go through the motions, um, but to really become more active in doing the work. I think doing the work is the most important part of it. And I think it's easier to talk about the work than to do the work. And so I think that, you know, 2021 needs less talking and, and more action would be my, my biggest thing. Okay, well, thank you both for, for being on the show on Fireside Chat Fridays. We are out of time. So Karen Cordano, school board candidate, Amalia Scandalis, former Syracuse City School District teacher, thank you both for your time and for sharing your thoughts here on Fireside Chat Fridays. We're sponsored by Parents for Public Schools of Syracuse, where we work to give voice to the people, the families, the community here in Syracuse on matters of public education. 
I am your host, the Idea Dynamo, Samantha Pierce. Thank you and good night.